Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 20. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or, is, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Gene, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Exilic, and it's so good to worship with you on this, really, the last Sunday um, of the summer. And I, I feel this way every Labor Day weekend, but it's like, where did the summer go? Um, but if you've been with us at Exilic over the summer, you'll know that we took a break from our spring sermon series. We were going through the book of Genesis, and we got to hear from guest speakers. We got to hear sermons from different passages of the Bible. Um, well, next week, Pastor Aaron will resume that sermon series from Genesis. We'll pick up where we left off. Um, but for today, we get one more kind of standalone sermon uh, that's not tied to a topical sermon series or a particular book. And I think the summer is a great time where we can kind of just take a step back and we can recalibrate, recenter ourselves. And a good way to do that is to kind of look at the big picture. And last, last month, I, I preached a sermon, and I called it The Waiting Life. And I talked about how the Christian life is, is a waiting life. The posture of a Christian is that of waiting in anticipation for, for something better, for something eternal. We're pilgrims, we're exiles, we are awaiting, we're journeying to our true home. And today, I want to kind of pick up on that theme again, um, but I want to talk about the journey. And uh, I, I want to say that the Christian life is, is not just a waiting life, but it is a walking life. So in our passage today on Ephesians 5, we have a picture of the Christian life, and the metaphor used here is that of walking. 
So life is not just static, but it is progressing. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not about existing, it's about going somewhere. It's a journey. So as Christians, we walk with purpose to a destination. And the Apostle Paul, the author of, of this book, he says walk three times in this passage. He says walk in love, walk as children of light, and walk wisely. So this chapter, it really is about living. And that's what the second half of the book of Ephesians is all about. Ephesians 1 through 3, the first half of the book, it, there's a lot of theology. It's about how we're saved by grace through faith. And then the second half of Ephesians, it's all about, so what does that mean for daily life? What does that mean for how I live? <clears throat> so two weeks ago, Pastor Aaron preached a sermon on Ephesians 4, and he talked about the primary call. The primary call that we have as children of God. So Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are called to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And Paul goes on to say in that chapter that we should take off the old self and put on the new self. So we're called by God, so we should live for God, but how should we live? And that's what the rest of Ephesians is all about. How do we live according to our call? So let's take a look at verse 1 of uh, Ephesians 5. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God, imitators of God as beloved children. Paul says that we are beloved children of God. He is our loving Father. Now, a lot of you right now are not blown away by that truth. It's not a very novel concept for us. A lot of us, we grew up in the church and uh, we were taught to pray at a very young age to God, our Father, our Father in heaven. So we don't really think twice when we think of the fatherhood of God. But I want to say that this was an explosive concept in the first century. Nobody was saying that God was a father. So for the Jews, the God of the Old Testament was a transcendent God. He was the almighty God. He was a God who spoke the universe, the heavens and the earth, into existence. He's the God who parted the Red Sea, who miraculously and powerfully delivered his people. God was good, yes. God was loving, yes. But God was utterly unapproachable. God was holy. So fatherhood, it implies intimacy. It, 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 it implies access and even equality. So this is why everyone thought Jesus was crazy and offensive when he went around calling God his father. Who are you? You're a carpenter, man. And Jesus called God Abba, father. Abba's an intimate term for father. It's, it's like dad. 
So when Paul says in Romans 8.15 that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and for Paul to say here in Ephesians 5 that we are beloved children, a completely new dimension of God is unlocked. He's not only the transcendent God who is far off, but he is a father who is near. He's approachable. He's intimate. And this intimacy with God was unheard of. It was a completely revolutionary idea. Hear what J.I. Packer says in Knowing God. He says, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator, for everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly, distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. It's exclusive to Christianity. No other religion presents God as Father. So keep that in mind as we study this passage. And I think that that is a reminder that perhaps some of us need this afternoon. No matter what your earthly father is like, knowing that you have a loving, a gracious, an intimate father. So that's how Paul kind of sets up this section. His thesis is we are to be imitators of God. The Christian life, it's a life of imitation. It's imitating God. But how exactly does one do that? Because remember, God is perfect and we are not. So you can tell me, just imitate LeBron James and dunk the basketball. I'm going to get about six inches off the ground on a good day. You can tell me, just imitate Michael B. Jordan's body. And you know what? This dad bod physique is the best you're going to get. We, we looked in, in our affirmation of faith today at question seven of the Westminster Larger Catechism, what is God? Well, uh, question four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, Justice, goodness, and truth. How do we imitate that? Well, Paul says we do it as beloved children. Children who imitate their parents, they do it clumsily, imperfectly, but lovingly. God is our Father, and we are his children. So when he tells us to imitate himself, God is a parent who's saying, watch, watch me. Oh, it, it's okay. It's, it's okay if you don't get it right away. It's okay if you mess up. I'm not mad at you. Let's try again. That, that's the God we have. Imitate, watch, do Verse 2, it says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, a fragrant offering is referring to a burnt offering. So in the Old Testament, this was common practice. An animal was slaughtered on the altar and then set on fire. 
And then the smoke would rise up and it would be a fragrant offering to God. A little morbid if you ask me. Because on the one hand, it's, it's, it's fragrant to God, but on the other hand, it is flagrant to the animal. In this case, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the fragrant offering. He's the sacrifice on our behalf. On the cross, he was brutalized and destroyed, but through his sacrifice, he becomes this fragrant offering to God the Father. And this is really important for us to know, that when God looks at us, he's not your stereotypical, distant, disapproving Asian father. He doesn't look at us like something smells really bad. He's not frowning at us and thinking, why can't you do better? Why can't you be like David's sister, Sarah? (laughs) That's not God. When God looks at us, he smells something fragrant. His eyes light up. A smile is on his face. That is the foundation of love that we stand upon. This is how we walk in love. That's the starting point for us. So the way that Paul presents the Christian life in this passage, it's to present God as a father who sacrificed everything for his child. And he's correcting, he's directing his beloved children. And he does what every good parent should do. He lovingly teaches his children. So the way that Paul presents God in this chapter, God is a father who's down on one knee and he's talking with a smile to his beloved child. And God does three things in this passage. He gives a strong rebuke, he gives a loving reminder, and he gives a better alternative. So first, a strong rebuke. So two weeks ago, I finally took three of my boys to a Yankees game. It was just me uh, with, with three of my boys. And because I'm, I'm cheap and I didn't want to pay for parking, we parked really far away from the stadium on the street. And we walked. It took forever to walk to the stadium. And um, the boys were so excited to be out. Uh, they were being silly. They were hitting each other. They were running around. I was just trying to con- corral them and just trying to keep some sort of semblance of order. Um, and at one point, my, young, my, uh, my third boy, Nathan, he, he ran off, and he almost ran into the street. So I, I had to grab him, and, and I had to use my dad voice. Hey! No! <laughs> I, no! What are you, what are you, that's so dangerous! Don't run away from me. Do you know what can happen to you? Don't ever do that again. I had to give him a strong rebuke. I had to get his attention, even if it meant in that moment, scaring him or shocking him a little bit. 
There's a tremendous urgency that must be communicated to him in that moment. Do you have any idea what you're doing? Do you know how dangerous it is? Don't you see all these cars and these strangers? Sometimes gentleness is not an appropriate response. It would be bad parenting if I wasn't forceful in that moment in my tone and message. Paul issues a strong rebuke in this passage. And he refers to two sins in particular, lust and greed. Lust and greed. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So Paul mentions sexual immorality, which is the act of adultery, but he also mentions all impurity, which is any form of sexual thought or sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. And covetousness, which is greed. So in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, uh, Brian Chapel asked this question, why these two sins in particular? They seem like an unlikely duo, lust and greed. Why does Paul link them? In essence, both are the consequence of concluding that what God provides is not enough. When either controls us, we conclude that God's provision for our lives is inadequate. Whether we pursue a lust for persons or things, we profess that his supply is insufficient and deny his lordship over that aspect of our lives. Verse 4, Paul continues. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So Paul says that instead of these things, let there be thanksgiving. Lust and greed are the antithesis of thanksgiving. When you lust after people or material things, you're not thankful for what you have. It's really impossible to be thankful and lustful and greedy at the same time. He says, lust and greed must not even be named among you. What he's saying is this, stay as far away from them as possible. Don't go near them. There, there shouldn't even be a hint of them in your life. No filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. Paul says this, don't even joke about it. Do you have any idea how dangerous these sins are? This is not funny. There, there's an urgency here. There's, there's a danger. Verse 5 for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is a harsh warning. These are, are sobering words. Be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is greedy has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. 
Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sin, sons of disobedience. Paul is saying, this sin is so, these sins are so, sins are, sin is so serious that it will disqualify someone from the kingdom of Christ and subject them to the wrath of God. So what's Paul saying here? Well, the strategy against lust and greed, it really is to starve it out. Don't feed your lust and greed. The more you do give in, the more you indulge, the more insatiable, the more irresistible, the longings become. And I think in general, we like to flirt with sin, don't we? We, we want to know where the line is and get as close to that line as possible. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I would have students ask me, can I hold hands with my girlfriend? Is it okay if we kiss? What are they, they're saying, where's the line? Where's the sin? And let me get as close to it as possible without crossing it. And Paul's rebuke here is this, stay as far back as possible. Stay as far away. Get as far away from lust and greed as possible. Let there not even be a hint. Don't even joke about it. And his rebuke is that hell, wrath are consequences of sin. So don't give in to your longings, not even a little. Starve out the sin in your life. So what does this look like practically? Well, Paul says in verse 15, be wise, don't be foolish. Don't be a fool. Wisdom. And one definition of wisdom that we talk about here at Exilic a lot is that wisdom is the ability to skillfully navigate through life, particularly when the moral rules don't apply. And I think that's a majority of our lives, right? Most of life is not lived in the black and white, but in the gray. In most of life, we need wisdom to decide, is this, not is this right or wrong, but is this wise or foolish? Because we live in a world where temptation is all around us. The most graphic images are a click, a swipe, a tap away. Advertisements, commercials, billboards, everything is, is, is seeking to captivate us, to seduce us, to titillate us. It's impossible to navigate around temptation and to starve out sin in this world today without being intentional and proactive to avoid sins like lust and greed. Even social media, it's designed to keep us scrolling. Anything to get follows, clicks, and likes. And in so many ways, lust is easier to identify than greed. Right? As a pastor, I've prayed with many people who have struggled with lust. But you know what I've never, has never happened to me? Where someone comes up to me and says, Pastor, I'm really struggling with greed this week. Can we talk? Can we pray? It's never happened. But you know what? <clears throat> it's not enough just to be wise. We need to let go of our sin. We need to get it out of our lives. So one of my best friends, uh, best man at my wedding, he's a surgeon. And uh, a few months ago, his dad was on a mission trip to Central America. And I guess his dad was taking a lot of medicine, and he accidentally swallowed a, a cap from a water bottle. And um, he didn't tell anyone about it. 
and uh, a few weeks go by, and he starts getting a lot of acid reflux, and then a few months go by, and by now it's a full-blown ulcer. And uh, what happened was his stomach, it couldn't pass the, 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 the cap from the water bottle. So what his stomach did was it kind of doubled down on the acid to try to, 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 to corrode it and to break it down. And what ended up happening to him was uh, the cap corroded into the lining of his stomach. He showed me pictures from the, scan, the scope. Um, and my friend was so mad. He was like, Dad, I'm a surgeon. <laughs> why didn't you tell me? Like, why didn't you just leave it in there? And his dad was like, I, 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 I felt ashamed. <laughs> I think sin often works in similar ways. We engage, we indulge, and we let it into our hearts, and we can't get rid of it on our own. And we just try to deal with the symptoms. Let's just take some Tums and hope the problem goes away. Instead of getting to the root of it, and it isn't until God, the great surgeon, intervenes and we allow him to remove sin from us, that we repent of it and confess it, that we can be healed. Friend, are you struggling in your sin alone? Are you too ashamed to talk about it? Do you, do you tell yourself that you can handle it, that it won't really affect you? As Pastor Aaron said earlier, sin is crouching. It wants to devour you. John Owen said, we have to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We, we can't just peaceably coexist with sin and think we'll be okay. We have to give our sin to Jesus. A stern rebuke. But is a strong rebuke enough? So if I were to end the sermon right here, how many of us would successfully overcome all temptations of lust and greed? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us more. He's just given us a strong rebuke. He's mentioned that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or greedy has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But here's what he's not saying. Okay, so hear me. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, stop sinning or you're going to go to hell. That's, he's not saying that. He's not saying, if you don't cut it out right now, God's wrath is coming for you. That's not what he's saying. Listen carefully to what he says in verse 6. He says, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. So here's the good news. If you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is not you. Verse 7, therefore, do not become partners with them. Them. So what Paul's doing is he's drawing a sharp line of demarcation between believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, children of God, sons of disobedience, you and them. Remember that Paul is writing this letter to Christians. And he said in verse 1, you are beloved children of God. 
His loving reminder is this. Remember who you are. Remember. He's saying stop acting like the sons of disobedience. Stop acting like God does not exist. Stop living your life as though you were an atheist functionally. Remember who you are. That's not you. Stop living in darkness. You are light. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul doesn't say here that we were in darkness and we are now in light. He says we were darkness, but now we are light. So it's not about circumstances or behavior. That's not what changes We fundamentally change when you become a Christian. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Tim Keller always used to say that Christianity is not a vitamin supplement that you take. It's a sweeping revolution that affects every part of your life. And that's absolutely true. It's not a new morality that we follow. It's not a new mindset that we adopt. It's a death and resurrection. It's a transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So if you believe and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are God's children now. We've been adopted by him. We are now children of light, so walk in the light. And, and I do want to say this to non-Christians um, we're so glad you're here, and I, I'm so thankful that you are, you are, you are here, but I, I do want you to hear this for what it is. It's, it's, it's a strong warning. The Bible is clear that there is, beyond this life, consequences, judgment for the way we live now. The Bible's clear that things like the wrath of God, hell that is eternal, these are realities that the Bible strongly affirms. No one talked about hell more than Jesus himself. These are realities. But I I do want to say this. Christians are no better than non-Christians. Christians don't have it figured out and non-Christians are not quite there yet. That's not what I'm saying. All of us need to be saved, Christian or non-Christian. All of us are sinners in need of grace. So I I do want to say this now, and I, I hope you'll hear me. The Bible says that judgment is coming. The day of judgment is coming. But here's the good news. That day is not today. Today is a time of mercy. So will you... Will you carefully consider the warnings of the Bible and think about how you want to live and what your primary calling and purpose in life is? And our hope is that you will come to believe and place your faith in Christ. So how do we as Christians, children of light, expose darkness? And the answer is this, by not being swallowed up by it. We avoid darkness by basking in the light. 
We are light in the Lord. That means this. The light, it doesn't come from within us. It's not inherent in us. We reflect his light. It's kind of like the moon. The moon doesn't have its own light, but the, way, the, the reason why we see it and it shines for us is because it's reflecting the light of the sun. We are to reflect the light of our Lord into the darkness to expose the deeds of the darkness. Um, back in, in, um, in Czechoslovakia, um, it's now Czech Republic, um, there was uh, a revolution that took place where the communist regime was overthrown. And um, th- this was called the Velvet Revolution. And the reason it was called the Velvet Revolution was it was virtually nonviolent. So the communist regime was overthrown without any battles or violence. Um, and they asked the, the first president of the Czech Republic, who happened also to be a playwright, Vaclav Havel, why? Why was it so successfully nonviolent? And the answer that Havel gives is this. We had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays, sang our songs, read our poems, until we knew the truth so well that we could go out to the streets of Prague and say, We don't believe in your lies anymore, and communism had to fall. Bask in the light, reflect the light, love the truth, and know it so well that you don't believe in the lies of darkness anymore. So God has given us a strong rebuke, a loving reminder, but here's the the last thing he gives us, a better alternative. You know, God doesn't just say, stop doing bad things. He says, do better things. He gives us something better. And we've already seen that God has said, instead of lust and greed, let there be thanksgiving. But he gives another example in verse 18. He says this, and do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, do not get drunk, which is debauchery. Now, let me be clear, this is not a prohibition on alcohol consumption, but it is speaking specifically against getting drunk and the behavior that comes with that debauchery. Drunkenness and debauchery, they often glorify lust and greed. Drunkenness doesn't make you wise. It it actually makes you really foolish. But ultimately, the reason why Paul says don't get drunk is this. He offers something much better. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Why do people drink? Well, people drink to enhance their happiness. So if you're celebrating, alcohol makes you happier. If you're depressed or hurting, the alcohol takes the edge off of your pain. How does it work? Well, it works this way. Alcohol is a depressant. It's a chemical that depresses part of the brain. So it makes your brain less aware of your problems. It lowers your inhibitions. And what Paul is saying is this. You don't need it. You don't need it. You don't need to get drunk in order to be happy. You have something better. Because at the heart of the Christian life 
is joy. You don't have to get drunk to get the joy that the Spirit gives. Listen to what he says here. Sing to one another. Sing to the Lord. Make melody. Sing to one another. Make music. There's tremendous joy in celebration and thanksgiving. And the Spirit works in the opposite way of alcohol. It doesn't make you less aware of your problems, but it makes you more. The Spirit makes you more aware of Jesus. The Spirit takes what Jesus has done, his person and his work, and magnifies them so that our problems become small. Because ultimately, the reason why we disobey God, the reason why we sin, the reason why we, we struggle with lust and greed is because we are not joyful enough in Christ. Lust and greed, they promise us that they will make us happy. If I could just have that job, if I could just have that apartment, that car, that person, I would be happy. Pornography promises us happiness in small doses, brief moments. The way to truly overcome temptation is not willpower and self-denial. We don't want to just be white-knuckling it and thinking, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. The way to overcome temptation is to embrace that which is exceedingly better. The more you're filled with the Spirit, the less of an appetite you'll have for sin. Are you filled with the Spirit? Is the Spirit in you, filling you, making you happy in Jesus? He brings you joy, not just the feeling of joy, but deeper intimacy with God that makes you truly happy and fulfilled. You know, one of my favorite shows uh, this past year has been The Bear. I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but a big theme of the show, and especially season two of the show, is the theme of transformation. So there's this one character who's quite the curmudgeon and kind of a jerk, and then he experiences this profound transformation in season two. It's really remarkable to see. And uh, one of my favorite young cultural critics wrote an article about season two and the theme of transformation. I think many of you know her. Uh, here's what she wrote. Transformation out of an established pattern and into something new is not produced out of thin air. Rather, we are changed by beholding what is beautiful. Christ himself being the perfection of beauty, actively participating in this beholding will do two things. It will help us to unlearn habitual patterns of fractured belief and at the same time equip us to experience life according to God's economic principles. And I love this part. Transformation comes about when we have an encounter with the sublime, when we touch the splendor of something much bigger than ourselves. I want to ask you, have you encountered the sublime? Have you touched the splendor of something much bigger than yourself? What we all need this afternoon is to be re-enchanted, recaptivated, with the transcendent beauty and goodness of God. God doesn't just rebuke us strongly. He doesn't just remind us lovingly. He gives us something so much better than our sin. He gives us himself. You know, if I walk into a room and I see one of my kids playing with a knife, I will absolutely rebuke him strongly. I can remind him that I love him. But you know what the fastest way to get the knife is? Here's a new PS5. 
He loses all interest in the knife. You know, a good parent does all three. Teach your child the danger of bad decisions. Remind your child of your love for him or her. And finally, show them something so much better. Show them the better way. That is what God does for us in this passage. He says, don't take sin lightly. Remember who you are. Take from me that which is so much better. That is the walking life. That is how we are to walk with God in this journey of life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this reminder this afternoon that you are a loving father who lovingly, gently, and even strongly reminds us that we need to imitate you. Thank you that you are a gracious God. And I pray that we would walk with you every step of this way on this journey home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.